and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello, I'm Colin Church, CEO of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. Welcome to another episode of IOM3 Investigates. Ever since Blue Planet 2 hit our screens back in 2017, public awareness of materials has started to grow. From immediate concerns about plastic pollution, increasingly people are looking at the wider climate, air, soil, water and biodiversity impacts of our seemingly insatiable demand for more stuff. But although concern about this is starting to become mainstream, perhaps even fashionable, it has been around for a while. Indeed, as far back as January 2011, a book was published looking at our addiction to material goods and identifying some potential ways to change. Ten years on, to see how things have changed, or indeed stayed the same, I'm joined by its author, Julie Hill, MBE. Nowadays, Julie chairs the Waste and Resource Action Programme, RAP, a charity that works with governments, businesses and communities to deliver practical solutions to improve resource efficiency. So she clearly knows what she is talking about. Julie, hello. Hello, Colin. Very, very pleased to be joining you for this. Thank you. Um, to start us off, I, I said a little bit about your background, but only a tiny bit. Can you give us a bit of a potted history of, of Julie to date, please? OK, <laughs> um, so I grew up in the suburbs of London in a place called Pinner. Uh, I went to the same local school as Elton John. I always feel I have to mention that. It's one of my few claims to fame. Uh, I studied English and philosophy and then I did a master's degree in politics. Uh, I wanted to be a political journalist, but before I could make that happen, I took a temporary job helping to organise a big international conference on sustainable development issues, which back then, that was 1984, sustainable development was quite a novel and unfamiliar concept to a lot of people. Um, and my job was basically to bring in people from all over the world to tell their stories um, and paint a more hopeful picture of development. Uh, they were very much stories of hope and I just loved those people and the subject uh, and so I think at that point I got a sense that this kind of thing might be my, my mission if you like. Uh, I then joined Green Alliance so that was my next job so Green Alliance is a UK-based think tank then very small and now still sort of medium size but always punching a bit above its weight. I started doing the admin and rose up through the not very large ranks to become director um, for five years till 1997, at which point I had my first son and decided I didn't want to work quite the hours I'd been working. So I went part-time and at that point started taking on uh, non-executive roles. So starting with the Eden Project in Cornwall, Environment Agency, I've been on the Consumer Council for Water Board and Institution of Environmental Sciences. And, and as you said, my main job now is, is a non-executive role, it's chairing RAP, the, the Waste and Resources Action Programme, uh, which is a huge privilege because it is absolutely embodying all the things I've ever thought and written about really. It, it's a big international charity of about 200 people and its mission is indeed this, a, a world where resources are used sustainably, uh, a world without waste. So that's where I've ended up and very pleased to have done so. 
Thank you. It's a very interesting trajectory. I, I think a lot of us are very grateful you didn't end up as a political journalist, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so your book, The Secret Life of Stuff, it's uh, 10 years old this month. So why did you write it back then? What was it that inspired you to put finger to keyboard? Well, I've, I suppose I'd always wanted to be a writer, hence the journalism thing. I, I think I started writing appalling romantic fiction around age 13 and fortunately didn't for everyone didn't carry on down that but I've always loved writing I've always done a lot of writing in the course of my career but I think that particular subject the fascination with waste and stuff started because I was on an advisory group to a large waste company which entailed going around lots of sites so I was actually seeing mm. waste treatment which most people don't you know so I'd stood on the landfills I'd been in the incinerators I've seen the recycling plants or whatever and it just got me wondering what is all this stuff because this is end of life stuff you know it's literally reached the end of the road where's all this come from and why is it here why is it passed through our hands so quickly and so I think the secret life of stuff actually came to me standing on a landfill site on a hot day mm. so hot and very, very sobering <laughs> yes now, perhaps some of the people who are listening to the podcast have actually read the book, perhaps some of them haven't. Do you think you could just give us a very quick summary and we'll go into it in a bit more detail through the rest of the episode? OK, well, the basic thesis is if we are to have a planet worth living on in future, we need to use materials much more carefully. And that means changing products and the systems that produce them. That's the essence of it. It's also very much starting from the premise that we all love stuff. I certainly do but unfortunately it all has to come from somewhere and it all has to go somewhere and all of that has environmental costs most of which are not factored into the prices we pay and most of which we simply don't see and we can't do much about that as individuals because we don't have enough information so companies and governments need to take the lead to improve our stuff that's my conclusion so i started with a vision which I think is really important. I think if we want to change the way we live, you have to sort of sketch a new way of doing it, make it, try to make it real. So I start with a chapter that's about an imagined family of the not too distant future and all the ways in which their lives are better and everything's better. It's either, you know, wonderfully visionary or appallingly twee, depending on, you know, how you approach it, but uh, I'll leave others to judge. And it's in essence, a future where all energy is renewable, all materials are recoverable, many aspects of life are just more desirable, I suppose. And it was quite interesting rereading it. I, I reread the book from cover to cover in preparation for this, which I hadn't done since it was finished. It's <laughs> Finishing a book is quite hard work, so you tend not to. And rereading it, I thought, well, actually, there are echoes here of a post-pandemic world. There are some things that people are beginning to envisage. So that was quite interesting. So that, so I started by trying to sketch a vision, which is, I guess, to draw readers into, you know, how it could all be better. I then did a very quick tour of the material world, what stuff actually is physically. And, you know, in essence, it starts as stardust and it ends in landfill. Um, that's, you know, that's the long and short of it, really. And I have this sort of exercise where try to get everyone to think about deconstructing your house. You know, if you, if you took to bits everything you own, everything around you, and, and put it into piles of material, you'd end up with, you know, actually not many different types of things and different sort of kinds of things in the pile. So that was sort of starting to think about what we have. 
Then a bit about, you know, what are the backstories of this stuff? What are the environmental costs? They're, they're, they're lots, they're interconnected, they're not necessarily predictable. That takes us on to the whole notion of limits. How much stuff can we have without risking collapse at some level? Then the really interesting bit, certainly for me as quite a big consumer in some ways, is what drives us as consumers? What can we do? What can I do? Uh, and then the bits are about how to make the change. What's possible? How would we do it? Mm. So that's the that's the sort of quick summary. I mean, you said already that the early part of the book looks at different material categories. And, and in a way, it's a bit of a, a primer on materials, minerals and mining, isn't it? And you cover minerals and concrete and ceramics and glass and metals and wood and paper and plastics and textiles and composites. One of the questions, though, is that was the situation then 10 years ago. How much do you think it's changed now when you look where we are now? And if you were writing the book again or writing it anew, as it were, how would your list of, of key materials change? Well, I don't think there's any new categories of things. There's nothing new under the sun, I think, in that sense. What there is is continual innovation within some of those categories. I guess the main ones are probably, you know, the ever-growing list of different types of plastic, including now a bit of a drive towards bioplastics, plastics from plant sources, and also plastics that biodegrade, and composite materials. So things that are, you know, different materials welded together. So things like carbon fibre, that kind of material and there's been an emphasis on that because those materials are both very strong and very lightweight so they have definite advantages in terms of um, carbon emissions so carbon fiber cars uh, the kind of really clever composites you need to make something strong enough to be a wind turbine blade that kind of thing but the problem with this and this is what comes through trying to sort of dissect the material world is anything that is mixed is almost by definition very hard to recover um, and that is really the essence of a lot of the problems we have. Yes, it all comes down to thermodynamics, as uh, people often say. It certainly does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've already mentioned, you, you talk in the book about environmental limits, and I think that's a, a really uh, useful, although um, also sometimes challenging concept to play with. Um, this idea that there's a limit to what we can take from the planet around us, because we only have the one. Uh, and one of the metrics that people increasingly talk about is the so-called Earth Overshoot Day. Mm -hmm. The day when we exhaust a year's supply of the planet's bounty. And that's moved, hasn't it? When they backcasted it to the 1970s. Um, I think it was around the end of December, 29th of December, something like that. And now, with the exception of 2020, which is a bit of an odd year, we're to late July. And, and the expectation, unfortunately, is it will become earlier in the year. Do you think it's a useful concept in this space of limits? What are the issues around materials use that we need to worry about? I think it's a very useful metaphor because what it translates really is to is sort of living on our planetary overdraft. You know, we're not getting to the end of the year living within the means of the resources that the planet can provide every year. So overshoot half for two reasons. Either we exploit renewable resources faster than they can regenerate. So that's the clearing of forests, extraction of timber, letting soil erode, variety of sort of uh, things to do with the, the renewable, the, nat the, the organic world, or we're exploiting non-renewable resources in a way that have damaging side effects. So that's using fossil fuels and the consequent greenhouse gases and, and climate change um, and continually using it and not finding substitutes. So we're not making that any better, we're just making it worse. So that's the living on the overdraft concept. 
uh, and whether it's that way of getting over the idea or it's the one planet living instead of we're using three planets worth of resources, I, I think doesn't matter. It's, it's getting through to people that all of this has accelerating impact. Um, it, it all has something. Yeah. At the end of the day, everything we have is either grown or mined and none yeah. of that's without impact. And we're just, you know, doing it more and more, basically. Yes, I really think the that the phrase, you know, if it's not grown, it's mine is a really important one to bear in mind. Although, of course, increasingly you can add into that a little bit of recycling, which is which is helpful. Do you think things have developed in terms of public and political attention in this space? Is is this question of overusing our resources, over exploiting our planet um, taken more seriously now than 10 years ago or about the same or, or less seriously, do you think? Well, it's, it's evident that the environment in general is being taken much more seriously at all levels, you know, by our youth, which is fantastic, by our, and consequently, um, I think, by companies and our politicians. That's been very much driven by not just the concept of climate change, but very visible climate change in the shape of floods and fires. You know, we're seeing the consequences. So I think that's resulted in some very important political statements and goals, you know, net zero goals from you know, increasing number of countries, including China. You know, that's a fantastic development. But the, the greenhouse gas goals are not necessarily the only ones we need. There are a range of others to do with, with material impact, the problems of plastic pollution. And I think plastics do serve as a bit of a touchstone for many people of our sort of general wastefulness and, and carelessness. So yes, it's being taken much more seriously, but still, and this is very much my thesis in the book about the limitations of green consumption, doing anything about it, certainly at an individual level, is still very hard because there's still this in overall lack of transparency about what all this stuff is. It, it's very hard to find out where it comes from, what its major impacts are, what we should choose instead. And, and choose something most holistic. And what I love about the work RAP does is, you know, works with, with businesses to try and understand and change that, you know, mm. really drill down into um, what the hotspots are and what they could do about it. Yeah, I, I really agree that some of the issues around even subtypes of plastic around plastic stirrers or coffee cups or plastic bags or whatever else are important ways to try and get people to start thinking about some of these issues. The analogy I sometimes use is um, the gateway drug analogy, the idea that um, if somebody takes pot, they're more likely to take cocaine. If they take cocaine, they're more likely to take heroin and so on and so forth, that gateway into drug taking. And I often think of plastics and, and, and coffee pots and bags and such like as being gateway issues into thinking about material and resource efficiency. But as with drugs, most of us don't go there. There are people <laughs> like yourself and, and me who, who care about these issues and think about these deeply. But um, it's, it's really difficult to, to inspire everybody to think deeply about their material use in a way that's, that's effective because of all of those issues that you talked about, plus complexity we're doing this podcast using some modern technology and neither of us i suspect could name every single component that was involved in that and the materials that they were made of so yeah well absolutely colin you're right it's complicated you know um climate change and greenhouse gases are, are simple in the sense that it's one thing that is universally bad and and needs to be limited and by and large we have a pretty good sense of where most of them come from whereas with the material world, it's a bit harder. And it, it, you know, if we, if we want to drill down, it depends what 
lens we take you know if we if we really want to worry about greenhouse gas emissions in relation to material we should be much more worried about cement and the metal that invariably goes into goes with cement goes into concrete then we should be about the global co2 impact of plastic and concrete accounts for eight percent of global greenhouse gas emissions but on the other hand plastics are ubiquitous they're everywhere we see them they're they're causing all kinds of different problems so you know drilling down to in, in knowing about that and where things sit in the scheme of things is quite hard you know cotton seems like a lovely natural fabric but it's one of the thirstiest crops there is and it requires an, an awful lot of pesticides mm-hmm. electric cars are great but the minerals in the batteries are sometimes come from very dubious sources you know that it, it's very difficult we need to manage all this very consciously and that's very difficult if we don't have the right information. Yeah. And of course, a lot of these pressures are growing. I mean, one of my favourite, uh, in inverted commas, reports from last year was something from the World Bank looking at the likely demand for materials extracted by mining, so minerals and metals, in order to meet uh, a one and a half or two degree scenario in terms of the concrete you need for wind turbines and the battery metals you need and so on and so forth. And it's, it's some vast three billion tonnes, I think it was, 500% increase um, over the next few years if we're going to have enough material to deliver the technologies that we currently think we need to get to that kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the demand is, is e- even without population growth and growing wealth, the demand is, is huge. Well, yeah, well, that's right. But, but we also do still have population growth and, and growing wealth. And of course, for many people in the world, their standard of living needs to go up. Um, that's true. And, you know, it doesn't matter how efficient we are, that overall consumption is still growing. If you look at the data for the UK, for example, on the raw material consumption per unit of GDP measure, which is a, a way of deciding whether we're using materials more efficiently in, in the stuff that we're producing. Um, we're something like 60% more efficient now than we were 20 years ago. So in, in a relative sense, that's, that's obviously good news, but if you're producing two or 300% more stuff, you're still using more stuff as you go through it, aren't you? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's a relative measure. So that efficiency um, per unit of economic output is not enough to compensate for the overall growth and consumption. So, so certainly if we look at it globally, so according to some measures, the world passed the 100 billion tonnes a year resource take mark in around 2017. I mean, figures vary, but it's, you know, if it's not at that level yet, it soon will be. Um, and it was a quarter of that in the 1970s. So it's basically quadrupled while the population's doubled so it's well outpacing population growth and what that means everyone on the planet is on average consuming more and as we say some people need to consume more some of us maybe need to consume less Uh, but if we carry on on current trajectories resources could nearly double again by 2050 in another 30 years so in many ways, it doesn't matter how much stuff per unit GDP, if we carry on on the growth path, the, the rising affluence eclipses those efficiencies. And, you know, we're not, on a, we're not on a good trajectory. Is there any sign of people starting to change this? I mean, you, you hear the odd conversation about maybe GDP isn't the, the be all and end all. Where's the debate going, do you think, in this space? Yeah, I think slowly, not as much questioning of, of the growth model as, as there should be. But then it does depend what kind of growth, you know, does, does, the, does that economic growth, so the generation of 
prosperity, as it were, inevitably mean more resource take? Is it completely coupled to use of resources? Um, and, and so whatever level of economic growth we have, and whether we can envisage that as far slow or even none at all, it's got to be decoupled from the resource use, or, the, or at least the environmental impacts of the resource use. Because the, the tonnage of resources is such a crude measure in many ways. Some things have way more environmental impact than others. So just the sheer tonnages don't necessarily tell us enough about the environmental impact of growth. That's what we've got to try and get a hold of. But, but one way or another, it, it's got to mean using the resources that we do take very differently. Um, or switch them for different resources. Yeah. And I think that's why, in, you know, changing our, our resources, you know, for instance, from non-renewable to renewable is, is certainly one route, but the circular economy route, the reuse and recycling route is, has got to be another, because if we can keep stuff in use, you know, that should limit primary extraction mm. to some extent, just keeping it circulated. So, so there are lovely reports saying the world's only 8% circular at the moment. We're only keeping 8% of stuff in the economy. And that's, you know, that is such a waste of resource. You know, we, we can't carry on like that. Yes. Um, and, and it's about design. You know, mm. we should see that as a design flaw. Waste is a design flaw. You know, we yeah. can design things to keep them in use. Um, as a bit of a diversion and, 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 and referring back to your comment right at the beginning about how the post-pandemic world might be different. Do you think that hygiene concerns in the context of the pandemic has changed people's attitudes towards reuse? Because reuse was starting to get quite a lot of legs about a year or so ago, and, and you've got lots of supermarkets trying refillable dry goods and, and, and so on and so forth, and moving away from um, single-use bottles and, 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 and all of that. Do you think people's hygiene concerns have changed that, or is that a temporary blip, or am I just wrong? Well, I, I guess in the sense that's about roots of contamination, we have to hope that's a temporary concern, you know, that we won't continually be concerned about being contaminated by physical objects um, and that we can go back to that, uh, you know, very positive progress in, in having reuse. Uh, I, I, you know, there's clearly a real concern about PPE, about protective equipment and that obviously needs to be disposable um, in many cases. Uh, whether that significant take against the 350 million tonnes of global plastic uh, production every year, I'm, I'm not quite sh sure, but I think it does really highlight all the usual concerns with plastic about uh, keeping it, you know, treating it properly, not disposing of it badly, uh, and finding different solutions for it if we possibly can. It presents what is possibly the ultimate design challenge. Um, one of the things that I really felt when I read the book resonated for me personally, um, and you've, again, you've already mentioned this, is the, the, the fact that this, this addiction to stuff is, is really human. It's really part mm -hmm. of our nature. And you get the example, which I love, the Tracy and the giant pink pencil. Um, but you also talk more honestly about your own shopping habit, um, which you've already re referred to, and, and, and it completely resonated. And evolution has kind of made us acquisitive as, as, as a race and as individuals. Do you think that policymakers have done enough to think about these psychological, anthropological people issues? I think it's very hard for politicians to go there. Uh, I think at the level of sort of behavioural insight generally, a lot of the work RAT does, for instance, is about understanding how people treat food and how, you know, we can nudge people towards 
wasting less food. Um, and so that's seen as a sort of, ex yes, exercise in, in sort of nudge techniques and giving people better choices and giving them the right information and so on. So I think at that level of behavioral insight into it is possible to develop better habits. And indeed at RAP, you know, we think that's really worked with, with food waste. Um, that, yeah, that is taking hold. But I think the more sort of general thing about how much stuff should we have is very hard territory for any politicians, you know, especially in a sort of libertarian politics. Um, we, you know, I think we're by definition very hard to constrain. I think just listening to some stuff on the radio over Christmas, you know, there's lovely stuff about Cromwell trying to cancel Christmas and mm. there were riots in the streets and Chairman Mao tried to get everyone to wear the same clothes and all people did was wear their nice fancy clothes under the boring Mao suits. You know, we, mm. it's, we, do, we really do seem to be a, a hard wired for it. So my, I mean, my feeling is, and that was part of the vision thing at the beginning, is how do you give people a sense of novelty and indulgence how do we all give that to ourselves that that novelty indulgence but decouple it from the material impact and in that sense i think things like buying people experiences or giving them promises as presents rather than the latest shiny thing i, I do think that's catching on a bit yeah I, I do wonder whether again in a sort of post-pandemic world that we're all going to be so desperate for those experiences that it will shift the, the the value of that up somewhat yeah i think it, i mean I, I think it could go one of two ways i hope that's true that people realize what they really value is seeing and connecting with people and volunteering and you know community activity i i really hope that will be true i do think it'll be true but i mean you know i miss shopping i'm mm. afraid um, you know, lockdown for me has partly made me realise how much stuff I already have around me and how I really don't need any more. But part of me is still longing to go back to a charity shop and mm. look for treasure. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, it's, the, it's the sort of magpie thing. I, I struggle with that myself and I expect a lot of people do. So, so again, it's about conditioning those, those choices. Can we, can we go shopping but decouple it from the impact because the products are just different and better? Yeah. And, and we've talked a bit, haven't we, how if you're just relying on the so-called ethical consumer or the green consumer, it's a limited way of, of moving things forward, because even the most dedicated green consumer, and I suspect that you and I would both consider ourselves to try to be in that space, at least occasionally. Sometimes, you know, sometimes when I go physically shopping, I'm just too hassled. You know, I've got two children. If I've got them with me and they're playing silly what's I can't spend the time in the headspace to think about every single item I'm putting into my trolley. And so I, I do think the ethical consumer is is helpful and useful, but it's far and away not the answer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you say, there are, you know, you may not have time, you may not have the right information because environmental cost is not priced in, then the more damaging thing may be the cheaper thing. And, you know, for many people, it, there's not a choice. The sort of labelled ethical things become by definition niche and they're often more expensive and the trouble with that is if you cater for the concerned and well off it means in essence everyone else carries on as usual or all other products carry on as usual so, mm. so my vision is one of redefining consumption so it's all acceptable at some level you know just as you you're not allowed to buy a product that will kill you that will heart you know electrocute you will poison you you know by and large there is some kind of standard around that and by the same token we shouldn't be allowed to buy products that are harmful to the environment it's just a question of working that out and and, and doing the choice editing 
Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, at least the public debate around things like chlorinated chicken and other food standards, because there does seem to be a very, very strong current in the UK saying we don't want to sacrifice our food standards and our animal standards. It's an acceptable route then for, for the state to intervene or for companies to intervene in people's choices, isn't it? It is. And it's interesting because food is generally one of the most sensitive things for perfectly understandable reasons. And, and so, yeah, I think it's very important that there's like consumer voice on food and food standards. But I mean, I'll just give you another example that I'm personally very cross about that is well below most people's radar. And that's still using peat in garden compost. Mm. So I do a lot of gardening, both personally and professionally sometimes. And it is still quite hard to find peat free yeah. compost. And apparently in surveys, most gardeners actually don't care about it that much. And the government was meant to do something about it way back. And the industry was meant to do something about it. And they still haven't. Yeah. And so there, that's the standard. We just, you know, peat in compost is very destructive of those very precious ecosystems. It simply should be, you know, the standard should be that you substitute it with something else. And do you think, Brands and retailers are, are, are doing enough in this space because we, we hear about some of the, the standard bearers in this space, whether it's Kingfisher, uh, B&Q or Marks and Spencers, uh, Patagonia in clothing and so on and so forth. Are they making real changes or are they doing that evil thing called greenwashing? Um, no, well, I, I think that there is really good stuff out there. I, I, I think a lot of greenwash has been eliminated by sort of advertising standards and backlash there, there is stuff going on but it's not necessarily consistent um i feel and and i think to make it consistent we've got to have a much more expanded notion of the responsibility of producers and retailers um that you know they really should have end-to-end -end responsibility uh for what they're putting on the market and by that i mean you know very conscious that things have been sourced well and very conscious of where it's going to go Mm. Um, and for all the good stuff, you know, there's always the odd sort of counter example. I mean, one I was I was quite amused to see over Christmas, a sort of echo of the thing I started the book with, which was being cross about the concept of drinks, plastic drinks glasses that have built in lights. You know, mm -hmm. they lit up when you pour drink in them. Yeah. But, but I did then do the diligent thing and work out actually how bad they were in the scheme of things. And the answer was, well, yeah, actually in the scheme of things, not a huge deal. However, probably still unnecessary. And over Christmas, I did see one retailer, which will remain nameless, with oh. light up bottles doubling as snow domes. Um, and I did think, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, do we do we because you know that is probably even if it goes in the recycling bin it must have some sort of electric yeah, battery or something in it so it shouldn't again it's a mix it's it's not very helpful who's going to take it to the amenity site and say that it's waste electronics i don't yeah. know but anyway i'm just so so for all the good stuff there there are the odd things where you just think really have they taken this on board yeah it's like shrink wrapped coconuts and other useless things. Um, so one of the things that you talk about in the fifth part of your book, I think it is, is um, principles for designing future products. And you, you talk about there being six principles that you think we should be using. And I think you were modestly optimistic that you could see those principles starting to be talked about. Mm -hmm. First of all, can you remind us what those principles are and then perhaps comment on whether you think they're still the right ones and whether in fact your modest optimism was misplaced or, or perhaps justified? 
Okay, um, right. Well, number one is everything sustainably sourced um, and ideally some sort of certification that it's been produced using good environmental and indeed social conditions. So the kind of precedents we have for that, the things that are started are things like um, the forest stewardship scheme for, for timber, sustainable timber extraction, um, fish, the marine stewardship uh, scheme, organic food has to be certified. I mean, the, the, the basic idea is that you have some form of credentials that the right environmental and labor and social conditions have been, been met. So that's the upstream bit. Next one, we've talked about everything's designed for recovery. As we've said, waste is a design flaw. Let's design our way out of that. Um, durability and longevity is key. And we know that people want that. They want more durable and repairable products. So let's, let's design that. Uh, number three was nutrient cycled. And this is a thing that was certainly well below my radar before I researched it. It's probably before a lot of people's radar, but, but basically most of our agriculture relies on artificial fertilizers, very energy hungry or resource depleting artificial fertilizers. And uh, on the other end of things, um, there is perfectly good fertilizer available in the form of animal and even human waste. Uh, but a lot of people don't, either don't think those two things should be joined up or you know it's structurally quite hard to go about it but we have got to circulate nutrients more effectively and also stop them washing into the ocean where they cause huge problems um so that's quite a quite a sort of specific but very large planetary scale problem number four was all energy renewable so that's the getting away from fossil fuels piece number five was stemming the flow of stuff so that's just reducing what we have that decoupling of our sense of prosperity from the materials or certainly the environmental impacts of, of the materials and number six was uh, what i called care with new promises so this is about things like genetic modification and nanotechnology and yeah i think they i mean i can't think of anything else i think that's enough of a set of things to be trying to progress i don't think there's anything new i think we're clearly doing pretty well with renewable energy globally and certainly in this country but the others need quite a lot of a boost really the market is not driving many of those things so enlightened companies or, or policy might have to and um optimism well yeah i mean where i see most progress and I would mention rap work wouldn't I because I'm very familiar with it but but rap has achieved quite a lot of progress and one of the things that has been key to this is the target measure act approach and, and mantra so again unless businesses unless all of us but specifically businesses really really understand where the biggest impacts are and exactly where they're coming from and what to do about it they can't really do much so mm. We've achieved a lot at RAP on things like plastics and textiles and food waste by taking that approach. Your last chapter in the book, I think you call it Humans Grow Up. Do you think that's happening? Do you think there are signs of that? Well, I, I guess the embracing of the climate change debate, at least, if not the actual actions, is, is a very good development. Um, I mean, I, I'm an optimist because I have to be to do what I do. Uh, if I look at it coolly, the physical measures are going very much in the wrong direction um but the narratives are as we've said much further on you know we have net zero goals around the world and from, and from some of the biggest polluters i think we're more aware of water issues um and i think our sense of materials the idea of the circular economy is is catching on we just have to translate all this into 
actual action? Yeah, there are signs, but will we be doing it quickly enough, I think is a really big question for us all. Yeah, and you know, and it really sounds like a cliche, but really everyone has to play their part because I suppose my observation of the way things change in, you know, 35 years of environmental policy and politics is a kind of delicate dance between public opinion, voter intention, political action, corporate behavior, you know, they're all, they're all, there's no one thing, they're all mutually reinforcing. There has to be some element of leadership from all those directions mm. and, it, and it has to come together. Yeah. Well, Julie, um, we've come to the hour recap of your book. I guess the next question that um, comes to my mind is, do you have another book in you? Are you going to, are you writing something as we speak? <laughs> no, I'm not. I mean, um, yeah, producing a book is um, very um, intense exercise. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, and also, I just, you know, I mean, I'm very proud to have written that book and rereading it. I was pleased with it. I, I sort of started rereading it thinking, oh, supposing I'm horrified by both <laughs> the content, the content and the style. But um, I'm, I'm happy with it. And I think it sets out the agenda that I want to set out. Mm. I think I'd rather now devote time to finding different ways of putting that forward like this, but also perhaps more visual ways. Um, one of the things I've very much championed in the organisations I've been involved with is using infographics, putting things over in much more accessible sort of visual means. You know, I, I was telling stories and, and trying to paint a picture with words, which I love doing, but I think telling those stories in pictures can be very compelling as well, mm. especially in an age of sort of social media sharing of imagery. Uh, I think it might, might be much easier to engage audiences of all kinds in you know, the, the vision and, and what's possible by producing really good pictures of it mm. and finding ways to have those shares. So I'm presently, the, the sort of project I've got on the stocks, as it were, is to turn it into visuals and then find ways to research whether those have an impact or not. You know, what works with different audiences. Any closing thoughts? You don't have to, but if you do, do you have any closing thoughts for us, Julie? Well, just going back to my sort of struggle with myself about, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go shopping? No, it wouldn't be nice to go shopping. I shouldn't be doing that. I should be using all the stuff around me. Um, one, one of the sort of big post-COVID debates, I think, will be what, what we do with our high streets and town centres, or indeed what we do with our cities if, if people are increasingly working at home. And it, it just strikes me that all this space should have a range of uses that subscribe to some of these principles so it should be space for um, giving people the skills to repair um, and reuse things for swapping things for community kitchens that make sure they don't use uh, waste food um, for sort of new types of hobbies new types of community connection yeah just just reusing the spaces that are inevitably going to be questioned um, in their uses to Put into practice all, all the sort of elements of the vision that I was trying to set out in the book. Mm. I think that's a, a very good thought to leave us with. Julie Hill, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining me to uh, investigate the secret life of stuff. Thank you, Colin. I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of IOM3 Investigates. I hope you've enjoyed it and perhaps learned something too. Apologies if there were any uh, technical issues with the sound. As you might understand, at the moment, we're recording these remotely over the internet, and so the sound is not always what we might wish. Keep safe. Thank you very much indeed, and goodbye. For more information about us, visit iom3.org.
Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at IOM3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.